Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Chris Chinchilla. This week is a KubeCon special. This all happened last week. I have some interviews. I have a few roundups of uh, news myself. And that's basically it. It's going to be a slightly long episode, maybe. I've cut the interviews a little uh, to mostly just have highlights from the interviews, but it's still going to go a little long. I have three interviews. I have an interview with Vijoy Pandey from uh, Cisco Cloud, uh, which was an interesting one. Well, they're all interesting. <laughs> I also have an interview with Michael Friedrich of GitLab, based actually here in Germany, in Nuremberg. And I have an interview with Amit Nair, the Vice President of Product Marketing at HashiCorp. And two of these companies, so HashiCorp and Cisco, I found interesting because they are kind of companies that had some of their business disrupted by things like Kubernetes and Cloud, well, maybe not cloud native, but um, containerization and, and virtualization of, of things, uh, especially Cisco in the hardware and HashiCorp with some of their older products. So I was interested to see how they've adapted to this kind of new landscape. So instead of my usual links, I'm just going to begin with a little bit of a roundup of general thoughts on the event and some other news announcements and, and highlights. So like many events this year, KubeCon was remote. I don't actually like the word virtual unless it's actually virtual in VR. It's not virtual in my mind. That's my pedantic editor's hat on. I'm going to call it a remote event, online event, maybe. It was weird. I, I must admit, I do not really like covering uh, online events. It's probably the first one I've actually covered in the past few months, whereas normally, you know, especially in the summer and then late summer, I'd be covering lots of events. Obviously, they've not really been happening. I have been attending some I don't even really like attending them. It just feels like I'm watching YouTube videos, which actually you are a lot of the time. Uh, it's quite hard to write up on them because you're generally doing something else. Whereas when you go to a conference, you're focused and you can talk to people and, and be a bit more engaged, whereas my attention is generally split. And also I found that despite this being a European conference, they ran it kind of more friendly to East Coast, especially US time which strangely meant that uh, I often missed talks in the afternoon because I had to go and do things and had work calls and things like that. That's the problem. Anyway, I did my best. Um, they kind of used their own platform, I think, unless it was a very uh, heavily labeled version of, of something else, which is probably what it was. It worked fine. A few people complained about some of the, the bandwidth issues and things like that, but I suppose it depends on the quality. It's interesting to see people delivering talks to an empty room. <laughs> Uh, some people have kind of figured it out how to do it and some haven't and and some look comfortable some look kind of weirdly practiced i suppose this is the thing if you if you do a talk you can firstly react with people you see uh, if you make mistakes you can kind of roll with it but um usually you have these sort of talks where people just do it like a normal presentation and if they make mistakes they stay in and it feels kind of natural but awkward because no one's really watching them in person or you get these very, very slick, polished ones, which also feel kind of weird because they feel too polished. So I don't know. It's weird. But uh, they did did uh, did well. I know that the CNCF were hoping to the last, well, not the last minute, but up until fairly late to try to make this happen in person. But it just wasn't possible. Uh, so the rest of the events of the year will be. So what are some of the other general announcements? Uh, some interesting things here. Um, so there's always been this massive, massive image, I suppose, uh, of all the various cloud native projects and how and what what 
verticals they fit into, which has become kind of comedic because it's so large. When you put it on a slide, no one could see anything. Um, and now they have updated or introduced. I'm not actually 100% sure. I can't quite remember now. I think it's maybe just updated. The interactive uh, landscape, which is available at landscape.cncf.io. And even even this barely fits on my 25-inch widescreen. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Is it, is it responsive? What happens? No, it is not responsive. So you need a large screen, even with this. But you can filter, you can zoom in, you can sort, things like that, which I guess is the point. And it still looks kind of dizzying. And I think everyone is sort of almost clamoring to get their place on here. It's quite slow as well. I wonder what the page size is. Some of the stats here are quite fascinating. Um, it claims about just over 1,400 projects uh, with about two and three quarter, no, two and a quarter million GitHub stars, a market cap of 20 trillion and funding of 68 billion collectively, which is quite amazing. Uh, I would be interested to see this over time and how many come and go and, and how many stick around and how many uh, are maintained. But um, yeah, interesting if you would like to have a look at an overview of the landscape at the moment. Another project that was announced is a Grafana dashboard. Unsurprisingly, Grafana is a very prominent part of the whole cloud native landscape. Um, it's it's slightly unwieldy URL, but if you go to all.devstats.cncf.io, and then look for project health table. You'll see this table here of the indicative product project health of various open source projects. Uh, the number of commits uh, over time in a short period of time, the kind of, uh, I guess, the maintainer um, pulse, um, who most of the commits come from, which I think is possibly the most interesting one to see uh, how many people are actually active in a community versus kind of one company behind. And even uh, so, Kubernetes I found kind of interesting here. Um, let's see. In the last year, as far as I can tell, it's slightly hard to interpret the, the labels. But Kubernetes, I think, in the past year is 22% Google, which is actually not bad. But then, strangely, um, Grafana behind Prometheus. It's 15%. So actually some of the smaller projects are better, interestingly. Anyway, it's, it's quite interesting to see and have a look at who's behind a lot of these things and how active they really are in, in their community. So that's also quite a fascinating dashboard to browse and play with. And obviously the Grafana dashboard, so you can filter it and do all sorts of things. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation gave out a top-end user award to Zalando. Anyone who is not in Central Europe will not necessarily know who Zalando are. They are a very large e-commerce, mostly clothing company here in Europe. They actually have a lot of offices here in Berlin. I'm pretty sure that a quarter of the engineers in Berlin have been employed by or are employed by Zalando at some point. Um, interestingly, they used to be much more active open source citizens, and I have some uh, some some information on that that I can't really divulge but anyway they have changed their attitude a little to open source and open source contributions in the in the recent time so it's kind of interesting to see that they got this announcement um it could be that they may be just more quiet about their open source contributions but they used to have lots of meetups and and all sorts of things uh like that in the past that um that maybe made it more clear what they were doing. They would have meetups, they would have 
talk about their contributions. They would actually release projects that they had found useful, things like that. But now, uh, let's see, why did they get this award? I mean, it's an end-user award, not necessarily a contributor award. Um, they have over 150 Kubernetes clusters. Clusters? Clusters? What's a cluster? It sounds like a kind of pasty with custard. Sounds horrible. About 2,500 nodes. 50% of which are in production, daily peaks of 20,000 requests per second for a single cluster. And they are home to about 2,000 production applications. And they use a lot of projects. So they have released some uh, recently as well. Skipper, um, not heard of that one. So maybe they're just being more quiet than they used to be. Postgres Operator, I do remember that one. Uh, Cubemetrics Adapter, Ingress Controller for AWS and more. And yeah, they got that award. It was nice to see kind of, well, it was a European event, so I guess you'd expect it, but nice to see a European company receive that award. Other news, um, Cortex was welcomed as an incubating project. Cortex is a storage solution, horizontally scalable, highly available, multi-tenant, long-term storage for Prometheus. Um, so time series of data, I guess. That has been brought into incubating. Thanos came out of Sandbox to incubation, which is actually uh, somewhat similar to Cortex. Um, also a metric system um, that integrates with Prometheus but helps it scale. There are others available. It's always interesting to see which ones end up being kind of bought into the fold and which ones don't. Um, I'm guessing it's probably more up to the project themselves. But so two two projects there that kind of acknowledge that uh, Prometheus sometimes is not so good at scale. And uh, so Thanos and Cortex being brought into the CNCF fold. Some other news uh, from Canonical. I was supposed to interview someone from Canonical, but missed the email. <laughs> so uh, Ubuntu, as always, as always has been the past few years, is the prime... Pri- Prominent, preeminent, not sure, operating system behind most Kubernetes public cloud distributions. They, and now I think I spoke to uh, someone from from Canonical about this last year, Charmed Kubernetes um, is their kind of specialized version for enterprise. They also now have micro, (laughs) micro, Kates, micro K8s. I think they were just about to announce this last year as well, which is a lightweight. Um, Kubernetes cluster for edge case clusters. I guess you could also use it kind of as for local testing, maybe. I think I, I think I wrote about it last year, actually. And they announced integration with Azure Arc, Microsoft Azure Arc, which is kind of a business focused centralized place to manage clusters and applications. And that was mostly it. I think announcements were kept relatively light this year for various reasons. So what else? Cloud 66. I was the hosting company, but I guess I was wrong. A leading provider of DevOps tools for containerized applications announced a partnership with hosting provider OVH Cloud, one of the largest hosting providers in Europe. Actually, um, they're one of these sorts of hosting providers you've probably never heard of because you don't really use them as a, as a consumer very much, but they're behind a lot of uh, other people. So they announced uh, a relationship with them. Intuit was announced as a gold member of the CNCF, a financial company, which is interesting. They make TurboTax, QuickBooks, Mint, etc. They've actually been a member for a couple of years. I guess they must use cloud-native tooling behind the scenes. But it's kind of interesting to see when you get companies like this that 
which is the way it should be. And, it, and it's similar with some, someone like Zalando, you know, companies that um, uh, are just using it for their day-to-day business and they don't necessarily contribute in, well, they contribute in some way, but they're not directly integrated. They're not creating tools and packages for the space themselves. They're actually just big users. And I think this was a trend I saw, and it'll come up a little bit in the Cisco interview, also a little bit in the HashiCorp interview, was this kind of enterprisation, if I can coin a phrase, of Kubernetes, which makes perfect sense, but trying to make Kubernetes more palatable and usable by non-DevOps developer types. Um, how realistic that is, how much you may like that, is yet to be decided and discussed, of course, but it's something that definitely was noticeable. Jaeger, Jaeger, um, it's actually, uh, I wonder who initially created Jaeger because it's actually the German word for hunter. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Jaeger had its fifth birthday. It's actually crazy to think that Kubernetes is old enough that some of the projects that leverage it and sit on top of it can be five years old now. Um, and they basically just celebrated these five years with some statistics about 1,700 contributors, 4,000 code commits, which is actually relatively small for that amount of contributors, 3,000 pull requests, 39,000 contributions, and 300 from 300 companies. So, yeah, Jaeger, which, which is an interesting project that a lot of people do use in, in uh, Kubernetes. Happy birthday. HA proxy. Actually, I did receive a separate email about this. Again, one I forgot to follow up with. Details their path to blazing fast ingress routing in the new Kubernetes ebook, which is sort of, <laughs> sort of a slight anticlimax. Uh, path to blazing fast ingress routing in a new book. Interesting. Um, I don't know if there's much detail about what this actually means and how they use it, but, um, yeah, it details the ingress pattern, which is a way of getting data in and out of Kubernetes and the HA proxy ingress controller. And there's actually, again, as we could see from the initial, um, my initial comment on the kind of landscape, um, interactive poster thing. There's a lot, always more than one option for everything. And ingress is one of those that is definitely the case. So. It's actually built upon HAProxy, which has already existed as a load balancer. Claims to be the world's fastest and most widely used. I'm not 100% sure if that's true. But anyway, <laughs> and now there is a specific Kubernetes ingress controller version of it. Finally, Pulumi. Uh, I bring in Pulumi um, because actually I have an interview coming up in the next few weeks with an author of a new book on Pulumi who works for them. So you can look forward to that. But uh, Pulumi is a sort of infrastructure as code tool that does things slightly differently. And I won't go into too much detail because, um, yeah, because I have a full episode about it very soon. But instead of you having to kind of learn new, um, a new domain specific language or use YAML or TOML or JSON config files, you can actually kind of program your infrastructure in the language you use, the programming language you use. And that's basically what Pulumi is. And this is an announcement from um, Pinpoint Software, who I'm not familiar with, but they're basically saying that lots of people are now starting to use them as opposed to other solutions. But yeah, there will be more from Pulumi soon. I'm not exactly sure when I will um, release that episode, but that is coming very soon. 
that was some of my roundup of news from KubeCon. Quite a bit of it. Um, not necessarily lots of whiz-bang, kind of big announcements, but in the nature of the times, I think just lots of consolidation, uh, growth, um, mature, maturization, maturing, that's the right word, of the cloud-native landscape. All right, let's get down to the interviews. So I am just going to go from one to the other. So first is an interview with Vijoya Pandey from Cisco Cloud. And following him will be my interview with Amit Nair, the Vice President of Product Marketing from HashiCorp, always a company I've had a lot of time for, and it's quite interesting to talk to them in person about what they've been up to. And then finally, Michael Friedrich of GitLab, one of their technical developer evangelists, and we talk about what uh, GitLab was announcing as well. So enjoy yeah, this. Yeah, we enjoyed Sunday. Running engineering research uh, and labs for a new group that just got formed inside of Cisco mm-hmm. about, let's say, a quarter ago um, called Emerging Tech and Incubation. And the charter for this group is to build the next few bets for Cisco, mm-hmm. the next few board bets, ventures, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, for Cisco. And this, like I said, it's, it's relatively new, uh, but we've already started working on three ventures as we speak and more coming along. So the, the, the motion that this group is going to go through is a full ideation pipeline where we go through a bunch of ideas. We narrow it down into a few POCs and based on customer feedback and what, what we see out there, in the field, we will narrow it further down to a bunch of ventures uh, that we would like to charter. Mm-hmm. And then in steady state, we will be graduating maybe two, three ventures per year uh, as we move along. So it's almost like a sliding window that goes across. Uh, so that's uh, ET and I. And I, like I said, I run three parts of that equation. One is the engineering uh, behind all of these ventures. The second thing would be university and research, which is working with the university and faculty and research labs out there, not just within U.S. or within Europe, but globally, uh, to see where we can take some of these ideas and to learn from that ecosystem as well. And then the third bit is uh, called co-innovation labs. And these are our footprint. This is a footprint, global footprint, of uh, labs that work with local governments, again, local universities, local venture capital communities, startups in various countries. And again, they they act as a two-way street where this is a vehicle for us to take some of our innovations to those countries and to those customers and those communities, but also allowing them to work with us in innovations. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's the third bit. So we're speaking during um, KubeCon. Uh, Kubernetes is, is probably a tiny part, well, not a tiny part, but a small part of uh, what the event is actually about. What does uh, what what does Kubernetes mean to to your department or team? And and what do you what what do you how do you use it? What are you working with it in your team? Well, that's a great question. And uh, before I jump into that one, I also want to add that I'm the 
CTO for cloud at Cisco as well. So there are two mm-hmm. parallel roles uh, that I have. Uh, and they're kind of related. I mean, I think to answer your question now, uh, I mean, Kubernetes and the entire CNCF ecosystem, the mm-hmm. cloud native ecosystem, is a big part of both my cloud hat as well as my ETNI uh, hat. Uh, because they are changing the way infrastructure is consumed and infrastructure is delivered and applications are delivered. So if you think about the, the transition that we've, we've been having as a community, uh, we've gone from monolithic apps, and this was either on bare metal or as a VM, because the whole virtualization space has primarily been around taking what existed in bare metal and wrapping it up in a VM. Mm-hmm. So whether you're looking at applications, taking a bare metal app, wrap it up in a VM, call it a day. Or whether you're looking at infrastructure, because you even our infrastructure, and I'm speaking from networking security, storage point of view, all of these things were like box-oriented. They were built for a certain era. And then when virtualization rolled around, we just wrapped everything, apps, infra, everything in a VM and called it a day. The operational model didn't change. The product, of course, didn't change. The skill set didn't change. Uh, and, and we just chugged along. What happened when we launched cloud native? And when we say we, it's like a community. When we launched cloud native, when we looked at uh, containers and serverless, it changed the paradigm when it came to the development of applications and the development of the infrastructures that supported those applications. So it made us go from monolithic to composable. And so you had containers and microservices and serverless. And that's the paradigm shift in developing applications, which implied that the infrastructure followed the application as well. So we have started, we've started looking at infrastructures in the same, using the same cloud native principles. So you're looking at composable ways of developing infrastructure, which also implied that the operational teams started looking very different. So SRE came into the picture. And so we're looking at the operations of, again, containers, microservices, at the infra layer, at the app layer, it doesn't matter. So it's also implied as a term that the skill sets and how you're organized, all of that state started changing. Because instead of having a database admin, which was like a big behemoth monolith, you're now looking at SREs that are looking at very thin layers and slivers of that entirety of that stack from infra to apps. So everything started changing. So back to your question on how does that matter to us? It matters to us a lot because in a multitude of ways, we are building networks, security, products that are relevant to this new cloud native environment. That's number one, first and foremost. Number two, the way we build our offers, whether they are developer-friendly, whether they are SaaS-first, they also consume a whole bunch of cloud native principles. So we will we are, we are using containers in everything that we do. We are using serverless 
and a whole bunch of things that we do. We are developing products for those environments. The third bit is our customers are also changing. And so the consumption model of everything that we build has to lean towards how our customers are changing. So that's the third way that we are, we are, we are uh, moving towards. So mm-hmm. being developer-friendly, being, uh, being open-source-friendly. Uh, so that's the other way that we are changing. And I'll just pause here because I think I can talk to any of these uh, uh, silos or, or any of these principles, but I'd, I'd like to say where you, where you want to take it. I'd like to go back a step first. As one of the topics we were going to talk about was um, software-defined wide area networks or SD-WAN, which I don't know, sounds like such a weird an acronym. I think I'd almost rather go for software-defined wide area networks. Um, and Cisco's traditional business, as far as I'm concerned anyway, as far as I'm aware, was in hardware and probably still is, to be fair. But um, you know, a lot of people would see Cisco devices around an office helping define networks. Um, so going back a, a step when it came to um, the onset of software-defined infrastructure, shall we say, how much, how much of your business was, to begin with, disrupted that, had to, that meant you had to get on, on board with a lot of the new technologies? Or, you know, I don't know how much you want to go into detail of this, but was there a period of time where you were trying maybe Hoping, hoping it was just a trend, <laughs> um, but then realizing that it was something you had to embrace instead. So I think, uh, I mean, if you think about the entirety of the stack, and I'll, and I'll answer, I'll try to answer this in a multitude of axes. Yeah, for sure. Because I think uh, there, is, there is definitely the notion of software-defined infrastructure, mm-hmm. and Cisco has embraced this at least in the past couple of years, I would say pretty deeply. Mm. Uh, and when I say pretty deeply, uh, let me just walk you through what that means. And so so that's, that's one angle I would like to talk about. And then the other aspect of this is, uh, if you think about, again, the whole spectrum of monolithic to composable, so bare metal, virtualization-based, uh, containers, microservices, serverless, which in general is tending towards service endpoint-based application infrastructures and architectures. Mm-hmm. I would like to bring that aspect as well. So let me just talk about both of those because I think you want to take a step back and talk about the first one uh, first. So when, when I say Cisco has embraced it, there are there are there are various pieces to this. First and foremost. Physical boxes are not going anywhere. I mean, the way I would phrase that cloud-native journey is there is the physical box, there is connectivity, there is going to be fiber. I mean, all of that stuff is not going to go anywhere. Whether it's being deployed by a cloud provider or it's being deployed on-prem or a service provider or within a campus, uh, branch office, I mean, the players might change. But that stuff is not going anywhere. That's like table six. I mean, without that, that, there's nothing else. That sits above. So what is changing is, I would say, how you use it, how you drive velocity into that equation, 
how you remove toil from that uh, equation, how you make it more nimble. So that's that's what's changing. So let's start there. And so if you think about us embracing this whole paradigm, there was an announcement that we made, I think December of last year, which right from the, <coughs> excuse me, from the bottom of the stack, which is the physical layer, we've embraced it to the point where we're saying, we've built boxes, but we will work with the customers to where they want us to work with. What does that mean? So if you as a customer want to just consume silicon from us, if you as a customer just want to consume optics from us, if you as a customer wants to consume just the BGP stack, mm-hmm. we're disaggregating all of that. And so some of our really large customers like the hyperscalers, for example, want to consume silicon optics, BGP stack, uh, packet core as, as, as a software uh, entity. So it's, it's just the breadth of the capabilities that Cisco has. You want to consume them on a, on, on, in what you would take and then integrate yourself. And that's not for everyone. That's for the big players. That's for, like I said, the hyperscalers, maybe the big financials, maybe the big SPs who want to build their own uh, integrated system out of it. So that's something that we've embraced deeply. The other bit, the other end of the spectrum is you you are a customer that has traditionally been in the box consumption business from Cisco, but you want to go higher up in the abstraction. Mm-hmm. So you want to go towards outcome-based. You want to go towards SaaS-based. You don't want to deal with these boxes. You just want to come to Cisco and say, give me SLOs, these are my KPIs, and we want to work with you at those KPIs and SLO layer, and I want to consume SaaS. And basically, forget about integrating these things on my own. So that's the other end of the spectrum that we are embracing, where we're saying, don't deploy us on-prem. Don't worry about these boxes I mean, when I say don't deploy us on-prem, it's like, don't just deploy it on-prem. Don't worry about this box versus that box or this software version versus that software version. What is it that you're trying to achieve from the outcome perspective? And we'll work with you on defining those outcomes and then we'll deliver on those outcomes. And we'll figure out whether this software piece, that software piece, this controller, all of the, I mean, this box, all of that, leave it to us. And we'll ensure that we'll comply to your outcomes at the efficiencies that you're looking for in those outcomes. So those outcomes are availability, velocity, efficiency, all of those things, whatever your business is looking for. So that's the other end of the spectrum. And so when I say we've embraced that, is the entire spectrum from capabilities to outcome-based selling that or consumption that that we are embracing. We should probably actually unpick a little bit um, because it's a slightly new term, although I have interviewed a few companies that work in the space of what what is a software-defined or what is an SD-WAN and why is it why is it new? What is it different from what what 
what did we do before? Sure. So let me jump into the SD-WAN of that spectrum that I just described. And uh, to, to really think about where WAN connectivity used to exist, mm. what SD-WAN came and solved the problems around and the evolution of SD-WAN and where it's headed. And so if you think about, again, the spectrum from public clouds, private data centers, branches, enterprises, edge compute locations, all the way down to handhelds, IoT devices, which are completely at the other end of the spectrum. So mm -hmm. this entire continuum from handheld IoT, edge, uh, branch, enterprise, uh, private data centers, and public clouds needs simplified connectivity. And it needs a whole bunch of other things, but uh, just because you are narrow and we are trying to narrow down on, on, on SD-WAN, this entire continuum needs connectivity. And in the past, this used to be this really uh, toil-based, uh, slow-moving uh, slow way of connecting these uh, physical assets, whether they are large assets or small assets uh, together through a combination of technologies. You would see uh, MPLS come into the picture. You would see some aspects of uh, Wi-Fi and some aspects of uh, like packet core and mobility and cellular and all of those technologies just come together in this entirety of spectrum and in this entirety of connectivity and then you would stick these things together. What happened with SD-WAN, when SD-WAN came into the picture was this whole MPLS stitching in the backbone got simplified to SD-WAN. So you put a layer across a whole bunch of providers and you called it SD-WAN. And this SD-WAN paradigm simplified connectivity between branch, enterprise, to some degree, taking it into the data center uh, 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 connectivity as well. What's happening in the SD-WAN layer as we speak is that it's expanding from just from just connecting branches and, and enterprises to data centers into the connection of data center to cloud, the connection of branches to cloud, connection of cloud to cloud. So all of those things are happening. So SD-WAN, when it started out, was a little bit narrower. We are expanding that definition and taking it into cloud-to-cloud, user-to-cloud, branch-to-data-center, branch-to-cloud, and all the combinations thereof. Mm -hmm. So we are simplifying that connectivity and making it pervasive, making it ubiquitous, and all the advantages of that simplified connectivity without thinking about who's the provider and what technology is a provider, we're trying to simplify that. So that's, okay. that's one aspect where we are simplifying using SD-WAN. What the announcement that we made in KubeCon and recently with Google as a partner is up-leveling that conversation, and that leads into the second bucket that I was uh, alluding to, is making SD-WAN more application-aware. And again, this conversation, like I said, is just about SD-WAN, but think about it 
as across all of networking, across all of infrastructure. But coming back to SD-WAN, when SD-WAN came around, it simplified all of this as an evolution. We are simplifying how it connects to clouds, end users, et cetera, et cetera. But it is not application aware. So this announcement at KubeCon is trying to do exactly that. So we are trying to make that SD-WAN solution become more flow-based, become more application aware. So instead of saying, yes, it's awesome, but it still doesn't take into account, and in the example that I threw, uh, what video requirements could be, what audio requirements could be, Mm -hmm. what 3D video requirements could be, if you saw my uh, keynote, what uh, like text or file access requirements bring to the table. So when you think about those uh, different application types and the SLOs that they require, that's the notion that we're trying to bring. So my name is Ahmed Nair. I'm the VP of Product Marketing at HashiCorp. Been here about two years. I've uh, seen the company grow significantly in that time frame. Uh, when I joined, it was about 250 employees. We crossed 1,000 employees in the last month. So the company has been growing, but most of that growth has been driven by the adoption of our technologies, both on the open source side with practitioners as well as commercial businesses. Um, and we've also seen enterprise adoption grow significantly over the past many months. We've crossed now over 700 enterprise customers, paying customers across every vertical from government through to retail, everything you can think of in between. Um, and in the meantime, we've also gone through a full evolution of all of our product sets, maturing many of the products uh, and also releasing a set of lots of new products along the way as well. So it's been a fun many years <laughs> that I've been here at HashiCorp. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is interesting. You're, you're one of, so we're speaking during KubeCon and HashiCorp is one of these interesting companies because in some respects you had a lot of your traditional tools and business taken away a bit from you by, <laughs> by tools like HashiCorp, but sorry, like by tools like uh, Kubernetes. Um, and I've been around long enough that I remember using Vagrant and it still has its, its use cases, but it's not as popular as it used to be. Uh, I don't think, I'm not sure. It's hard to say. It doesn't feel like it is, but it, it's hard to say. And, um, and I know you also had other tools that you were working on in the past few years that you somewhat had to put aside because uh, needs had and demand had changed a bit. But it kind of feels like you've managed to reinvent yourself somewhat in the past few years and then start to take that, you know, quite a good team and quite a good um, uh, knowledge in your team and, and create new tools that suit this this new tool chain people are using. So, yeah, I don't know if... If you have any comments on that, if I'm completely wrong. Or <laughs> I think that's always been our goal was to make sure we build tools that made sense for the practitioner, right? Everything that came on the commercial side after that was an offshoot of making sure we address the practitioner or the developer needs. And that's core to who we are. That's a core to how we do things. And that will continue to be the case. So we are open source at heart. Uh, that's how we perform. So I mean, Vagrant and Packer are still incredibly popular. The download numbers on those continue to grow up, go up. 
every month. So there, there are people still using it. And like you said, the use case is where it's relevant. It does its job. And that's really been that workflow-based process across all of the tools that have been focused on. Um, the main things that we announced over the last few months, in addition to the improvements in the products itself, have been how you consume the products, right? We had only the on-prem bits available, which you could download. Now you have the cloud versions of the products. So you have Terraform Cloud, which is available today. Uh, and then there's HCP announcement or HashiCorp Cloud Platform, which we announced at HashiConf EU a month ago. So with those two options, what we are trying to do is make those tools that we built more easily available to practitioners who need it. And they don't need to bother about setting it up and managing it and deploying it. All that, all that pain points are taken away. And I know um, tools like uh, Vault and Console are definitely uh, widely used in, in Kubernetes clusters. Um, Terraform, a reasonable amount too. So you, know, you still have a, a tools that... I think grew grew natively in this era. Although console, I think, was around for a little bit before and Terraform, but they they, they fit in quite nicely to the the new landscape as well. Yep, that's right. I mean, Vault um, Vault's become a platform. I mean, all of these have now become platforms because not only do they provide their inherent capabilities, but also plug in to the rest of the ecosystem, whether it's you know, Kubernetes ecosystem or the rest of the CNCF ecosystem. Like for example, Nomad, which is our orchestration solution, plugs in very well with Prometheus and other uh, Kubernetes environments as well. So, so we play very well with the ecosystem as well. So there's some core aspects and functionalities that we bring in, but then we can parse on some of that information out. For example, console as a service mesh solution collects a lot of information regarding those applications or services or even the pods or the containers that they're in, and then can send that information out to uh, an APM solution, for example, so they can then perform their task. Uh, so I think that's the other thing that we've been focused on. In addition to building tools that uh, make sense and are useful for the developers and practitioners, how do we also make sure it plays with the existing ecosystem? So collectively, all of this makes more sense, right? So... And so you've just announced this HashiCorp cloud platform. Um, and the tagline says, a fully managed platform offering HashiCorp products. Is this all products or specific products? So the first announcement was console only because that was the one that was most in demand. Uh, and next up, we'll have Vault. Uh, but then all of the products will be available over time. So that, that is a goal. It's really the one single platform where you can consume all of HashiCorp's offerings. And I mean, I have I have a vague idea and a vague understanding, but what what were you what were you doing before this to kind of monetize? This is not a um, an uncommon problem with open source companies, of course. But what were you doing before this offering? Did you have a a cloud platform before, or was it more traditional kind of enterprise support play or a little bit of both? It, it support definitely comes into play, uh, but our majority of our revenue is still from our enterprise platform, the bits that customers download and use in enterprises in their own data centers. Uh, but what you do get with the enterprise addition is things like teamwork and collaboration. So as more and more practitioners start to use instances of Terraform as an example, 
it's probably better to bring it all together so you can reuse what someone else has already created, right? So, so teamwork and collaboration was one enterprise capability. Governance is, and compliance is another one, especially as you tend to grow grow a lot in terms of usage. From an overall IT or ops perspective, we want to put control on access on rules based access or control who has access to what things. That are, the other things that you have from an enterprise perspective is uh, cost control. So you can set parameters to say, this is my budget for this month from a cloud, a cloud consumption standpoint and put those parameters in. So the governance capabilities within Sentinel will then dissuade someone from deploying something new to the cloud and things like that. So there's enterprise specific capabilities. There's also things like auditing, deep auditing, inspection and alerting, which are more IT centric or op centric capabilities. Not that there aren't those available for open source and practitioners, but it's enhanced when it comes becomes enterprise, right? So there's a whole set of enterprise capabilities that maybe a practitioner or developer would not care about as much. Those are all available as modules that can be purchased. And so what what will a console cloud offering offer beyond running it yourself? Yeah, so it gives you the manageability, obviously, because we, our SREs are the ones managing it in the background. Uh, we provide all of the core constituents of console, the ability to discover, go out and discover all the applications, microservices. So that service discovery aspect. Then eventually the service mesh capabilities, which includes connecting these services together based on policies that you define uh, checking the health of these applications and all, all of the things that come with the true service mesh solution, including the layer seven intentions, uh, the van optimization, the connection across different data centers and so on. Um, so all of the true capabilities of service mesh, but the advantage being now you are not running it in your data center. You're not managing it. You're not looking for uptime, downtime and updates and all that. The, all of that will be taken care of by the HashiCorp SREs in the background. Okay. Um, and was there anything else you announced at um, KubeCon that, well, I say it's all probably relevant, but not there <laughs> was anything else you announced at KubeCon as, as well, or was that the main thing? So that was announced actually at HashiCon. Oh, sorry, Hashicom. Hashicom. Yeah. 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 So that was, that was definitely the main thing, but we also made a significant announcements on improvements to the products. Uh, one of the other announcements recently was around Terraform Cloud business tier. So we have, while we have the Terraform Cloud uh, free tier, which is for practitioners to use, there's been increasing demand from businesses that they want some of these capabilities as a solution, as a service. So we recently announced Terraform Cloud business tier, um, which you know, enterprises will be able to purchase and use as a SaaS solution. Nomad has gone through significant uh, updates as well. So Nomad's our orchestrator solution. And in many cases, it works alongside Kubernetes for people, folks who've already invested and are using Kubernetes. Uh, Nomad, what they do is use it for legacy orchestration. So for applications that are still old school, um, you use Nomad while you need to use the uh, Kubernetes environment in the background. But there are some customers who decide they just want to go all in on Nomad as well. But with Nomad 0.12, we also announced, uh, introduced Container Network Interface, or CNI, which is a, CNI is a CNCF uh, project to standardize networking. Yeah, so that's available. Uh, we announced multi-cluster deployment for Nomad. 
which makes it the only orchestrator that supports supports federation capabilities, truly production ready federation capabilities. I know a lot of folks have been trying to solve that issue, and the Nomad engineering team was able to get that working in production across large numbers. So that that was one big one. Um, we also uh, there's some other announcements that were product specific as well. So Vault went through some improvements with its 1.5 announcement. So did Terraform with 0.13. More new providers were announced that. Uh, support CNCF members uh, within Terraform. So, yeah, it's been a busy summer, really. Yeah, and um, I mean, how old is HashiCorp now? I feel like it's been around for a reasonable amount of time, but reasonable amount of time in technology could mean five years. So, (laughs) how long has the company been around? So, we were founded in 2012. Okay. Fair bit. And we've gone through our own maturing process. Yeah. And so it actually also looks like just before summer, um, you raised a new venture round as well. And I'm assuming then that this is probably based on the cloud offerings you're now rolling out bit by bit. Yeah. At the time, we only had one cloud offering, which was Terraform Cloud, when we raised. And the race was... Uh, it was not based on the environment right now. We just realized we needed to take a little bit of money to move to the next step. That brings our total to $349 million, But that also meant our valuation overall went up significantly since our last round. The last round, we were at $1.9. Now we are at $5.1 billion. So, and, and, I mean, obviously, you have kind of commercial and open source interests. So feel free to talk about whatever you can talk about. But um, the, the, the core suite of tools HashiCorp now has have, has been, I mean, I'm not sure what the most recent one is, but you, you've had this suite for a reasonable amount of time, again, in technology terms. Is there anything new you're working on now, or is it mostly about getting stability into the existing portfolio? There, it's both, actually. Um, we're sort of, if, if you were to... So we have a big event coming up. It's called HashiConf US in October. So we will have some big announcements at that time. So or we can talk about new products. Uh, but I will tell you, it's really exciting. Well, you're um, not going to say anything else. Really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would definitely say you should t- tune into that event. But in the meantime, we have, as you said, been building out stability and more capabilities into our existing products. Right? We we have both open source practitioners and developers as well as enterprise customers who on a constant basis give us feedback on how we can improve our own tools. And we are a very community-driven organization, so we take it very seriously. And that's what we've been uh, heads down on building out. So every release that you've seen over the last six months, 12 months, will have features that were driven by the community or asked by the community for um, in addition to that, uh, stability is the other aspect. And then the delivery mechanisms was the other thing we were working on. How can we make this much simpler for an, a practitioner to consume? Hence Terraform Cloud, hence HCP, uh, and so on. So the cloud offerings. And those are all fairly new. And again, if you can mention it, um, what will be next on the cloud platform? Uh, so next on the cloud platform will be Vault. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess that will be uh, like the ability to issue and manage secrets out to 
clients that subscribe and something like that, I, I guess. Or yeah, yeah. Right. yeah absolutely right. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, I, I'm not. Even, I'm, I'm sure there are other commercial products that do that, but Vault is already used a lot by open source products, and it, I guess it kind of gives the power um, to manage the uh, secrets to an authority that isn't a developer. <laughs> in yeah, exactly. Yeah. So manages that secret, makes sure that the machine-to-machine uh, conversation before that happens, there's identity established and uh, the right identity is utilized in making sure that communication happens. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, has there been... <laughs> Has there been anything else from uh, from this week from KubeCon or when when was HashiConf? HashiConf, HashiConf was last month. Okay, so yeah, yeah okay. That uh, particularly got the interest of you or people in the company at all, or got you worried, or <laughs> uh, nothing in particular. I think our ecosystem continues to grow. I think the one thing that came out of uh, HashiConf for you was there's a lot more requests from partners and ecosystem and the rest of the ISV community to come and integrate into our solutions, which is really exciting. So I, I guess the takeaway for me was there's a, there are a lot of people watching what we are doing. There are a lot of both individuals as well as organizations very keen on working with us on making sure the platform continues to enhance what practitioners and developers need. Uh, and that's a good sign for us. And then they're willing to work with us to make that a reality, right? So uh, in many ways, that message that we are trying to tread through with the world is being heard and uh, the response has been very positive, I would say. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my name is Martin. I'm originally from Austria. I moved to Germany um, eight years ago, roundabout. So I'm living in the Nuremberg area. And I've been working in the open source monitoring um, the area in the past decade, um, maintaining an open source project called iSinger. And after a while, I figured I I want to like share what I know about Git and GitLab and uh, created trainings. Um, around about two and two or three years ago, and at some point I was like, "Oh yeah, but I could do more with GitLab." And I kind of uh, I found the role of a developer evangelist um, or a technical evangelist, which um, which defines what I love to do with uh, with our community. So like educate everyone, create insightful blog posts, share ideas, not necessarily focus only on, on GitLab, but also look into my ops focus area, for example, Prometheus for monitoring, um, uh, Terraform infrastructures code, anything which, uh, which follows um, specific workflows, pipelines, and makes our life easier. And technology is sometimes incredibly hard to understand. So it's, it's, I've also created a German coffee chat, um, where we exchange ideas, just talk about tech, try things out. Yesterday, we just Googled together for about a problem, uh, asking the community how to configure. I think it was SSH keys on Amazon EC2. Um, and I'm, I'm all in for, making our life more easy, share ideas, uh, talk about things, um, yeah, and 
create create uh, good content on social media, blog posts, um, naturally improving the product, so providing feedback uh, to GitLab, improving CI/CD, improving the monitoring stack. Uh, security is also something I do love. Um, oftentimes, it's just time, um, so it's it's really it's really time consuming to to work both in development and ops and security there are so many topics uh, to cover um so i'm i would say i'm confident with kubernetes and cloud native but i wouldn't call myself an expert in that area so it's it's okay. something just to, what was the name of the monitoring tool you said you made i think uh or it's written. I think it's, it's it was a fork of Narius and then was rewritten later on in in C So I was one of the the, the, the architects and creators of it. Um, but it's in 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 a, in a specific sense, it's it follows the classic service monitoring route, which gets complicated when you go into container and cloud native and microservices, um, where you don't have a whole service relationship. You just have like multiple containers and then a web shop. And it doesn't really matter whether there is four containers down because Kubernetes restarts them or something else. Um, and it's, it's more about like metrics versus states, traces, application performance monitoring insights. There's even more than just like saying, Hey, I'm running a plugin and it's either zero or it's not zero. Um, we need to define more to analyze the problem. Um, and this is also a journey I, I want to follow or I'm currently following um, because it's from a, when you start and want to monitor your, your application cluster, yeah, I have no idea how to start or when I'm like uh, sitting in front of it and, and getting an idea about the, the metrics and the, the insights is, um, is totally key because you get overwhelmed um, in, on this side. We can maybe dig into that subject a little later, but um, I'm just interested with a company like GitLab, and you've already mentioned it a little bit there. Uh, you, GitLab does a lot of things. And as a developer, uh, relations developer, evangelist, developer advocate, whatever we want to, to call the role, you could potentially cover so many topic areas. Do you focus on one in particular or do you – work across a lot of different ones or do you move from one to another? How do you decide what to actually focus on? So um, I'm working on, on a team uh, with the three of us. So um, we try to define focus areas and my focus area is ops, um, which goes into my monitoring and infrastructure as code uh, part of the game. Basically, I do love CICD and development, and I'm coming with a strong C++ and Golang background. Um, but it's, um, it could get overwhelming and it would be fragmented work. So in the beginning, I'm, I'm with GitLab now for six months. Um, I try to do everything and it's, it's impossible to do everything. Um, which, which means. I'm focusing on the ops side, touching a little bit, a little bit security, bringing it more into, into the space. Um, Brandon focuses on, on the dev side, CI, CD, GitOps. Um, 
anything which is uh, Jamstacks, JavaScript, .NET, and uh, Abu Bakr is uh, cloud native, Kubernetes, um, and I think yeah he he's he's also a developer at at some point he's also managing our cfp and um talk program so yeah we have so is that just three of you in the whole company or three of you on your team it's three technical evangelists currently um we in the we whole of planning getting... to Okay, I was quite surprised. I thought I thought you'd have had more. <laughs> we, we do we do have our community advocates team. Um, the thing is, um, when someone asks a technical question or something complicated on Twitter or on the forums, um, sometimes you know the answer. Sometimes you need to involve an expert. And one thing we've uh, we've tried to establish, or we are currently establishing, is is a way of. Uh, uh, our community advocates can, for example, ask a developer evangelist whether they know an expert or whether they can answer the question um, because we have the the philosophy or the idea to respond to everything which which gets asked. doesn't matter whether it's like yeah a little bit negative maybe, um, but we're trying to to push out the message and say, "Hey, sorry, what happened here? How can we improve? How can we improve? Uh, how can we get better?" from from that what's happening um because in the end it's 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 valuable feedback because we cannot really look into the developer ide and see what's going on and what's breaking and why the the merge request view is not that good um so every feedback is welcome yeah now i'm familiar with uh the the gitlab approach of of doing pretty much everything transparently which is sometimes probably a challenge but uh <laughs> but it's an interesting way of doing things um and it's actually taken me down some paths myself and i've been trying to find something and you end up engaging directly with team members of almost trying to solve the problem together um which is it's interesting uh and i i suppose you could probably say then that a lot of people in in gitlab are advocates anyway because of that so even though you're officially a team of three because sort of everybody is encouraged to be public and and help where they can i guess um there's more <laughs> yeah that's that's a, that's a great um summary of that i was about to say that it's not just the three of us we all work together and Sometimes it's you ask a question in Slack and four hours later someone else in a different time zone responds. Um, and it's not just can, it's not the way of like playing ping pong and you need to wait and so just saying, can you please answer that? Please go ahead. And then for me, the task is done. I'm going to sleep and someone else takes over. And, um, this was kind of a game changer for or a life changer for me as well, because I, I was more in the role of, like I'm waiting for feedback and I'm waiting for everything. And now I need to write or provide messages in a sense that the other side can just go on and it's not necessarily need a, need a sync call. Sometimes there are meetings for sync calls, but most oftentimes I can just go on and work. And then, yeah, it's, it's a natural flow. It's hard to describe. Um, oh, no, no, don't worry. I, I, I personally understand it. <laughs> I think a lot of people in this space work on similar teams. GitLab just takes it to the extreme. Um, but yeah, it's, it's somewhat 
familiar now. Um, too many, especially at the moment, I suppose. Uh, so GitLab is, is pretty fast moving. Um, in your interest area in particular, what is, what is new in, in GitLab? What is new in the ops features in GitLab at the moment or coming soon? One thing I really do like is um, that uh, the Terraform integration gets better and there are more features being added in, in a way um, that you can, for example, use uh, Git, the Git repository from GitLab as a state provider. You have the Terraform plan widget integrated in the, in the merge request. I think that was added in 13.0 or 13.0. To some something around that, um, but there's there are more integrations coming in that area, so making it uh, you don't need an external uh, provider for for specific, I think it's for authorization. Um, the thing is, um, you should be able to do everything from within GitLab and then deploy something and work with Terraform and even um, kind of simulate what's uh, what's going on. And when a change triggers, for example, a different provision type, you also want to have so, sort of uh, reporting or proof, proof who did the change. Uh, you can revert the change. You can uh, test the change in a staging environment, for, for instance. Um, so it really follows the, the infrastructure's code philosophy. Um, it's, it doesn't matter whether you write your Terraform file now in a Git repository or it's YAML or it's something different where you describe your infrastructure. Um, you need a way to keep the history intact. You need to know who, who did it. Hopefully not, not in a way of blame, but in a way of, um, working together and, um, having, having knowledge why the change actually happened. Mm, um, mm, mm. and we're speaking in the middle of, KubeCon, although with remote conferences, it, it sometimes doesn't really feel like anything's happening. It's, it's sort of odd, isn't it? <laughs> it's an odd feeling. Um, what uh, what is what is GitLab uh, announcing or improving, or or what what interests GitLab in attending KubeCon this year? Is there anything new you've added for Kubernetes support or related to Kubernetes projects? And there's many of them now. What are you you here to promote or talk about or learn? That's an interesting question. Um, we do have plans to create um, a dedicated Kubernetes agent for GitLab, which means uh, that uh, that the agent runs in the cluster and can act as a deployment endpoint. So it's, uh, it solves, solves different ways of um, you deploy something in your cluster and then it's gone and then you need to redeploy. In this case, you really have an agent in your, in your cluster. And the thing is, um, this needs some deeper thoughts and some try, trial out and trying, trying things out. Um, this is because, or this is the reason why, uh, 13.3, which which is out on Saturday, uh, will provide a Kubernetes agent proof of concept for now, but the journey is going on. Next to, next to the uh, Kubernetes agent as is, there are also ideas about using it as a proxy layer, for example, to fire uh, Prometheus queries for monitoring inside the cluster and, and other things. Um, 
One other thing to mention is the uh, there is a new uh, Kubernetes pod health dashboard coming in 13.3. Just to just to clarify that, so this is going to be a GitLab agent that runs inside Kubernetes, not the other way around. Not Kubernetes running in GitLab. No, it's it's uh, uh, the the GitLab agent is running inside the Kubernetes cluster. And so, is this for people? running GitLab self-hosted or is it for other purposes as well? Uh, this, this could be, so if, if you think of GitLab as the, the server instance or the deployment instance where you define everything, um, you can also connect, uh, a Kubernetes cluster to GitLab on, on .com. So like the, the, the SaaS on, uh, offering, um, which is, Super convenient, I found out lately. Um, you just like click and click and it's done basically. And then you install, for instance, a Prometheus, uh, app and, and have the cluster health monitoring inside. I, I think it was added, it was added in 13.2, which is also super, super nice. Um, and then there's the thing, um, the, uh, you want to synchronize the deployment. You want to synchronize specific things. Um, maybe in a, in a static connection, using it as a proxy for specific other tasks. Um, and there's lots of work to do. And those are my interviews with Vijoy Pandey, with Amit Nair and with Michael Friedrich. I hope you enjoyed that. I won't take up too much of your time here at the end of the show. Just some little announcements. The first episode of the Board Game Jerk podcast is probably going to be live at about the same time as this podcast. So if you go to anchor.fm slash boardgamejerk, you will find the first episode of that. And I'll be promoting that across the intersphere. I'm very pleased to see that. I have been doing lots of my streams. My solo gaming stream recently with Xnovo actually got me a lot of new followers and viewers, which is very pleased with. Um, and I will be doing some more um, next week, of course, of something else. My Dexpose developer experience, Expose, whatever you want to say it, stream has also been doing well. Uh, I did Document Node last week, and this week I just looked at Rasa, another local Berlin um, natural language processing chatbot framework and was pleasantly surprised to see how much they have improved in the years since I last looked at them. Anything else? Um, a little bit of content here and there coming out. Uh, just keep an eye on christianchiller.com for more details. I need to overhaul the website a little more to add a lot of the video I've been working on um, and some other things actually and the new podcasts. But um, you can go to find my contact details there just on the homepage and you could support me and the show by going to slash support. Sign up to my mailing list there to get the audio version of, uh, of get the audio version, get the newsletter version of the show. And anyone who signs the, joins the newsletter, I will send a sticker. I'm about to get some new ones printed very soon. And please rate, review, share the show, the podcast, wherever you are hearing or quote unquote watching. I will put this up on YouTube, even though there's going to be no video. So in my YouTube channel, um, on any of the other places you found the podcast version. And uh, yeah, until next time, thank you very much for joining me.